0: Welcome back OnScript listeners, Matt Lynch here with Matthew Bates hosting. We want to wish you a Happy New Year, Shana tova. and we hope that this year brings good things for you. We have some exciting new developments in OnScript that we will share in due course. I can't tell you yet, but stay tuned for that. And to begin the year, I just want to uh, mention two housekeeping things to bear in mind going forward. First of all, we would love your support whether that's through sharing telling people about us or financial and I have an idea that maybe some of you could find it in your hearts to go over to our donate page and become a monthly donor at two dollars a month so if you set that up with your bank you won't even feel it leaving your account in fact you'll probably receive 70-fold blessings in return. Um, it's, it's in the Bible. Second, we've now switched our, our podcast hosting over to Podbean, which you're not going to necessarily notice. Uh, but And we have the same homepage, onscript.study. But it did mean that we lost all of our iTunes reviews and ratings. Like iTunes, for some reason, doesn't retain those if you switch your hosting so as a favor to us could you please sign into your iTunes account and write a quick review Uh, within the logarithm of iTunes it helps us get exposure and kind of regain some of the uh, lost ground from from that changeover that we needed to do because of our need for increased bandwidth which is great it's a great problem to have Uh, we didn't expect so many listeners Uh, our listeners now number in the the hundreds of millions, well, not really. But we have we have a, a good number of listeners and we really appreciate you. So this episode is one of hopefully many bridges that Matt and I hope to build towards systematic theology. Uh, and it's it, this this is one of the areas that really needs serious work in scholarship, in the field of scholarship, and there are a lot of people kind of doing some some serious work and in, in writing around this this uh, subject of how to bridge biblical studies and systematic theology, um, with within the within the history of scholarship, those two have been driven apart because of the rigorously historical pursuits of biblical studies, and then on the other hand, the the, the more metaphysical and and even normative kind of claims of systematic theology. On the other hand, so that's a hard it's a hard bridge to cross it's a hard bridge to create uh and and this is this is one step in that direction so i hope you enjoy it and and maybe it's outside your comfort zone or what you're familiar with uh, so you know if you have questions you can always contact us just just put a comment in in the, the show notes and, and and we can get back to you on that so we hope you enjoy this and again have a happy new year
1: Or afternoon or evening as the case may be If you're a regular listener Then you've probably discerned that OnScript's Center of Gravity is recent scholarship On Scripture, that's why we are called OnScript, on scripture. Get it? Matt Lynch and I also Thought the title OnScript was suggested For our main content of pre-arranged Interviews, uh, as our listeners Reflect further upon all this I'm sure none will doubt that Matt Lynch and I Are terribly clever This is Matt Bates, your OnScript host Nevertheless, despite our scripture focus, both Matt Lynch and I are certainly interested in the intersection between biblical studies and the larger theological, religious, and academic world. So for my next couple episodes, prepare to spread your wings and fly beyond biblical studies proper into broader theological conversations. Toward that end, our guest today for OnScript is the very distinguished Dr. Oliver Crisp. Oliver Crisp is Professor of Systematic Theology in Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Theology. Along with Dr. Fred Sanders, Oliver has initiated the Los Angeles Theology Conferences, which are held at Biola and Fuller in alternate years. Dr. Crisp is also widely published. He's the author of numerous articles, 10 monographs, and has edited or co-edited another 10. Some of his recent titles include Divinity and Humanity, Deviant Calvinism, Jonathan Edwards Among the Theologians, and the book that we are discussing today, The Word Enfleshed. Exploring the Person and Work of Christ with Baker Academic 2016. So, Oliver, now that you've discovered that we here at OnScript are mere biblical scholars, not systematicians, are, are you still willing to speak with us?
2: Absolutely. I don't know about mere biblical scholars. I think I'm the one who should be in fear and trepidation, since uh, you're the people that studying scripture more closely, perhaps, than sometimes systematic theologians do.
1: Well, uh, I, I appreciate that you're, uh, you're willing to, to stoop down, I, I would say, uh, (laughs) and, uh, and speak to us biblical scholars. And certainly, um, I'm interested in the intersection of, uh, you know, systematics and, uh, 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 analytical uh, philosophy with theology, Um, but uh, I'm not an expert in it, so it's uh, with a bit of fear and trepidation then um, that I'm interviewing you about uh, this book, uh, as uh, clearly you're uh, in your own area of expertise there, and it's delightful to uh, discover what you come up with. Um, One of the questions that I have for you, uh, I suppose, is uh, as a systematician, uh, as you look across the aisle, so to speak, right now at biblical scholarship then, is there anything that excites you?
2: Oh, there's lots of things that excite me in biblical scholarship. I, I, I mean, it's a lot of the time. It's uh, I wish I had the time to invest in um, thinking more about the things that I am excited by in biblical scholarship. And in fact, being where I am at Fuller, it, I'm surrounded by you know really world-class biblical scholars. So it's great being able to speak to colleagues and friends about things that they're working on, and so on. Uh, in terms of stuff that I'm I'm excited about, I mean, like many uh, pe- people with theological interests, I suppose um, recent work in, or maybe not so recent work now, and the new perspective on Paul has been very interesting. And for the the um, work that I've been doing most recently in the atonement that we're talking about today, um, some of the work by pe- people like Michael Gorman um, has been particularly of interest to me in his work on. Uh, Pauline theology and on the atonement. But, uh, there are certainly other things as well. Grant McCaskill's, uh, work on union with Christ is, is, has been salient for me, um, in the recent material I've been, uh, considering on the work of Christ. And there are other things besides. I mean, I think also whether you consider this strictly, uh, biblical studies, the sort of theological interpretation of scripture stuff is obviously, is clearly a sort of bridge between the sorts of, uh, theological interests of theologians like me and perhaps some of the, some of the interests of biblical studies people and, um, it's been fun for me in the last few years to try to, um, think a little bit more along those sorts of lines with friends and scholars in the LA area who do that obviously professionally rather than amateurly like someone like me.
1: Yeah, well, uh, certainly some of the things, uh, both the names and the topics you mentioned uh, get get my blood flowing as well. And I, I do think that you're right uh, that theological interpretation or patristic resourcement is certainly doing much to bring our disciplines closer together. And I think that's a great thing and very exciting. Um, now, Oliver, you've recently penned this new book, The Word in Flesh for Baker Academic. Terrific book, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, uh, now, I couldn't help but notice that you dedicated uh, the book to Mike Ray, who uh, you, you enigmatically dub Minch. Uh, uh, Mike is one of my friends, too, uh, so I was immediately curious to hear more about how you know Mike uh, and your choices to get, dedicate the book to him.
2: Well, so Mike and I uh, met some years ago when I was on a postdoc at the University of Notre Dame at the Center of Philosophy and Religion, and we struck up a friendship then, and uh, that's kind of blossomed and, and continued over the years. Uh, also, during that time, when I was at Notre Dame, over a cup of coffee, actually, at the La Fortune Student Center, uh, we were discussing the fact that analytic philosophers and theologians don't speak to, to, to one another enough, and that there might be some fruitful work to be done on the intersection between those two disciplines, and out of that came a book called Analytic Theology, which uh, came out in 2009. And on the base of that, uh, a, a sort of a community of scholarship, I suppose, has grown up um, that has uh, been seeking in the, in the past six, seven, eight years to um, pursue that kind of project of, of doing theology, systematic theology, uh, using the kind of tools and methods of analytic philosophers or paying attention to that kind of literature uh, as a sort of philosophical resource in order to do so. So my, my association with Mike is both personal as well as professional. And I think we've both been, uh, invested in, in uh, considerable respects in the project of analytic theology since its inception. Both of us have, have gone on to do uh, various, uh, further projects in analytic theology. So it, it's just, it was, it was, uh, it seemed appropriate to, to me to, to dedicate some of my work to Mike, who's had a great influence on me and has been a great friend to me over the years, and he was a, an opportunity to do so. So I I took it. Hence the mensch. I mean, he really is. He's he's a wonderful person who has, uh, you know, selflessly given himself over the years to lots of different people, not just me, in order to um, see their own work flourish. And uh, he's, he's a really terrific friend as well, so it was a delight to be able to dedicate the book to him. Yeah, I,
1: I agree. Mike is a great guy, um, but I have to tell one story on him. In fact, uh, this story uh, uh, is uh, shows that he truly is a great guy because I was at first very suspicious of him, uh, because the context in which I met him uh, was when he was starting to date uh, his now wife, uh, my friend Chris. Uh, uh, whenever uh, we were in graduate school together, Chris and I were actually in the same cohort, uh, and so uh, you know later, whenever Mike and uh, Chris started to, to date, I was wondering who this guy is, you know, uh, and uh, and uh, you know. Know, suspicious of his intentions you know toward toward my good friend chris and, and whatnot uh but uh as i got to know mike uh i discovered uh a that he's a world-class philosopher that i probably should have known more about anyway uh and b that he's uh he's certainly a tremendous guy uh so uh i, I saw him at sbl and uh and mentioned that i was going to be interviewing you and uh he was excited about that so anyway mike's a, mike's a good a good fellow he really is. Um, now, uh, one of the things that might be helpful in, in terms of our, our, our audience here that's mainly scripture people um, would be for you to maybe frame what analytical uh, theology is, or analytic theology, and uh, and how exactly it could uh, potentially be of service uh, to
2: biblical scholars. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I There's a lot of misconceptions about analytic theology that still seem to be floating around, despite, I think, the the good efforts of many analytic theologians to try and uh dispel some of those. And in fact, a recent book by Tom McCall called An Invitation to Analytic Theology does a great job, I think, of laying out for a, a fairly general audience what analytic theology is really about. And I do recommend that to people. It's an IVP book, so it's not very expensive. But um in in essence I think of analytic theology as a, a mode or a method for uh, for doing theology. Uh and um it's it it's a in my way of thinking a fairly thin method, by which I mean it doesn't commit you to much by way of substantive uh, theological commitments. It's really a way of pursuing the theological task, which is in keeping with much uh, historic theology, which is really sought to utilize whatever philosophical tools were lying around at the time in order to prosecute the theological task. So you find that in theologians' uh you know as early back as Justin Martyr and going through um the years to people like um Anselm of Canterbury and, and Augustine before him or Thomas Aquinas or many of the post reformation and uh thinkers like someone like Jonathan Edwards and, and so on so i i don't think we're doing anything that's particularly weird in that respect but what's what's uh, taken people's attention i think is that modern theologians have tended to, when they've needed philosophical resources, have tended to turn to the so-called continental philosophical tradition for those resources rather than the analytic tradition. And really what we're recommending is that theologians pay more attention to the analytic literature because analytic philosophers have, uh, have a lot to contribute theologically in terms of the literature and the tools and methods that they utilize. But it's not the case, I think, that uh, Theology is enslaved to the philosophy, uh, rather you know, in a very traditional way. I think analytic theologians are utilising philosophical tools for a theological purpose, so that the philosophy is a kind of has a kind of handmaidenly role, uh, if you like, trying to help us to clarify things and to, and bring in concepts that we can uh, that will help us in our theological work. So, I mean, I think analytic theology has great promise and uh, is really, a very, you know, in many ways taking up a very traditional sort of task. And thankfully for us, lots of uh, analytic philosophers of the last forty years who who are also Christians have done a lot of really interesting work that that uh, is properly theological, and we can we can uh, bring into the discussion. In terms of the biblical studies connection, there's a a new institute that started at the University of St. Andrews, the Institute of uh, Analytic and Exegetical Theology, that's really trying to work hard at bringing together into conversation people in biblical studies and people in analytic theology, and I really hope that um, that has great success. Um, But there is certainly work to be done there, I think, in terms of uh, a kind of rapprochement between those in biblical studies and those doing theology uh, and analytic theology, I suppose, uh, more specifically. Um, I I mean, my sense is that analytic theology brings to the table a certain set of uh, sensibility, a kind of sensibility, a certain set of uh, tools and ways of approaching um, texts and approaching arguments and ideas that would be helpful and useful to people in biblical studies. I mean, by and large, people in biblical studies are keen on careful reading of texts, the the clear presentation of arguments for certain conclusions and so on. And in in many respects, that's very much uh, the sort of um, way of going about things that analytic theologians prize. So I hope to see more interaction between biblical scholars and analytic theologians going forward. There's there's already the beginnings of uh, such interactions, and I I think they're very promising. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. I think
1: if anyone, uh, if any of our listeners doubt uh, that analytic theology can be useful, I would encourage you to uh, take up Oliver's book, The Word in Flesh*, in a read, uh, as I do think that uh, you will discover that there is uh, a lot uh, that analytic theology does have to contribute to Christology. Um, now, before we get into some of the details of your book, uh, I was hoping that you might be willing to give us an overview of the whole, as I, I think that it's, um, uh, you're, you're in a sense dealing with a lot of discrete Christological puzzles or pieces, uh, but there's nevertheless, uh, uh, it seems like, an overarching um, organization and logic to how these pieces are coming together as a whole in your project, and I'm hoping that you could uh, outline that for us.
2: Yes, thanks. Um, in some respects, this book bridges some of my earlier work on the Incarnation, with uh, a work that I'm doing at the moment on the atonement, so this is a work that sort of deals with both aspects of the incarnation and the atonement, which I can I think of as two two parts of one whole work of God. So the work of uh, reconciling us to God's self is a work that begins with the incarnation and includes the life and ministry of Christ as well as his death, resurrection, and ascension. I haven't dealt with all of those things in detail in, in this short book, but I've tried to pick out what I think are important topics that uh, analytic theology can perhaps make some headway in, in contributing to um, and really the theme that runs the golden thread as it were that runs throughout the different chapters that I hope is clear to the to the reader is uh, what we might think of as a notion of participation or union with God in Christ um, which um, you know is obviously a very biblical notion particularly in the Pauline material so, Um, that's something which I've come to see more clearly in recent years uh, through a combination of um, going back to certain of the fathers of the church, particularly Irenaeus and Athanasius, um, reading certain people uh, that are later in the church, like, for example, Thomas Aquinas, and then interacting with some of the work of people that I already mentioned, like Michael Gorman um, on the Pauline material. And a lot of those different... Um, different things have come together, plus also recent work that's been done in historical theology from within the reformed tradition that I stand in that, that's trying to recover this notion of um, participation in the divine. It's a very sort of Thomistic and and ultimately, of course, Pauline notion. Um, so that is a golden thread that runs through the book. And we might summarize the whole trajectory by saying that uh, on my way of thinking, God creates the world ultimately in order that he may unite us with himself, that we may participate in the divine life. And that's brought about ultimately through the reconciling work of Christ. And so Christ's work is about bringing us into that intimate communion with uh, God by the power of the Holy Spirit and uh that's the thread that runs through the whole and then what i try to do is look at, at key as i see it anyway key topics that um that particularly uh focus on aspects of that story as it were that um we can tell with respect to the incarnation and the atonement of uh, of christ so there's work for example on you know the eternal generation of Christ, uh, which, uh, of, of, the Son of God, rather, which has been, uh, a topic of some discussion in recent evangelical theology, uh, of, um, you know, what we mean by the pre-existence of Christ, um, how we, we weigh up things like Christ having a body and yet being a spirit, uh, you know, in the sense of God being a spirit. Um, and then focusing on things like the image of God and uh, the um, the union of the two natures of Christ before before focusing on, on the atonement and union with Christ in the atonement participation in God through the atonement and the, the Holy Spirit's role in bringing us into union with Christ. And I mean, for me, the the material on the image of God and the material on the union stuff are really two nodal points in the book because uh, I think that Christ is, uh, is a kind of interface or a hub between divinity and humanity and in, in taking up human nature, and that uh, we might, with the New Testament authors, think of Christ as the prototypical image of God, the one who unites divinity and humanity so that we may be united through him with God, and that we are uh, sort of uh, Im- imaging God as we image Christ. And so, therefore... That's a, that's a sort of nice segue into this idea that Christ's work, um, as it were, from eternity past is ordained by God in order to, uh, bring about our union with Him through Christ's reconciling work. So that's, that's the kind of, the kind of big narrative that I'm trying to, um, press in these different chapters, I think.
1: Thanks. I think that was an extremely helpful overview, and I I like how you, you kind of on the one hand are dealing with issues of union, um, but also um, orienting that toward um, this being God's ultimate purpose to unite us to himself and this being connected to both the divine and the human nature of, of, of the Christ um, and we'll plunge into some more of the details of the book in a minute but I, I wanted to kind of continue to probe some of these large scale things uh, before we, we, we do so and uh, one of the opening lines in your book I think it actually was in the acknowledgement section though is, uh, is that theology is addictive um, <laughs> and uh, I, I agree um, but I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about how maybe this book emerges from your own life story i mean can you can you spell out the nature of how this addiction began and has grown for you and how that might connect specifically to to this work that has uh now appeared this this book uh the, the word in flashed.
2: yeah i'm happy to say something about that I'm, i like the fact that you picked up on that i mean i don't know how Everybody thinks about theology. Some people might think it's utterly boring. Some people might think, oh, you know, why, why do that? Why, why can't you do something more useful with your life? But I must say, from a, from a fairly early age, I found theological questions to be um, not merely intellectually captivating, although I have found them to be that, but also of great existential importance. I was the kind of teenager who agonized over, you know, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What's the point of it all? Happily for me as a teenager, I was brought up in the church. And so a lot of the, that kind of anxiety was channeled in a hopefully productive direction by thinking about these things theologically. And in a sense, what's happened since then is that I've had, I've been given opportunities to pursue the study of those questions. And fortunately for me, that's, and that's included being able to, um, you know study it right through to graduate school and and then ultimately make a living thinking about these things and teaching about these things so uh, it is true to say I think for me that the fundamental issues that theology addresses um, have have been very personal questions as well as uh, as very important questions to me and are uh, questions that I really do think about all the time i mean um, theology is addictive in the sense that, you know, once you've got the bug, once you're starting to think about um, these really fundamental issues that we all want answers to, you know, why are we here? What's the point of it all? Is there any meaning to life? Is there something more than this life? Is there life after death and all that kind of stuff? Uh, the, the answers that, that um, you find in the gospel and that are articulated for us uh, by the, the great tradition of theologians reflecting on the truth of the gospel and the truth that we find in scripture Um, is, for me anyway, utterly captivating. So I can't seem to get away from it. I mean, at various points in my life, I have tried to get away from it, but I've always sort of come back to trying to deal with these questions. So when it came to this book, I mean, this book is an outgrowth of a long period of reflection in particular upon the personal work of Christ. And um, I mean, there have been several issues that I've come back to time and again in my own uh, uh, research and writing over the years. Um, but I think one of the central uh, motifs has been, for me, the personal work of Christ, because it seems to me that that's, that really gets to the nub of the matter as far as the Christian gospel is concerned. We need to understand, uh, to the extent that we're able to understand, who Christ is, what he has done for us on our behalf, and why that matters for us as human beings, Um if the great things of the gospel are true and, and these are the most momentous things that one can look into, it seems to me, because if they're true, then nothing can be more important than trying to um, make sense to the extent that we're able to make sense of the, uh, the truth of the incarnation and the atoning work of Christ. So uh, I've done previous work on the incarnation, several several previous uh, books on the incarnation and, and papers and so on. But uh, gradually, I've come to want to focus a little more on the uh, the atonement or the reconciling aspect of Christ's work. And this book brings together some work that I've been thinking about over the last eight or nine years on on the topic as a first, first stepping stone into thinking uh, further, I hope, about um, the reconciling work of Christ going forward. So it's really been um, a project that is born out of... Uh, an, a sort of uh, a long desire to think uh, systematically about the, this, the, the reconciling work of Christ and spend some time actually producing a piece of work that tries to present some of those issues. Um, and this is more recent for me, this, this this motif about participation. But I think once I came to see that more clearly in the last few years, um, that really galvanized me to think, yeah, maybe I've got something that can be written and, and that might make a contribution to... Uh, what's going on with uh, work that's being done in this kind of area at the moment well, I appreciate your uh, your existential uh,
1: connection to the material and your clear passion for it and I think that uh, that does flow over into your uh, into your your work I mean you can see I think um, by the way that you keep more deeply probing that you actually care about this not just in an academic sense but in a more personal sense uh, and uh, and I think that does shine through in places. Now Oliver, your your first chapter uh, you you just alluded to as you were as you were explaining your some of your connection to the material and uh, it's uh, a chapter on the etern- the eternal generation of the son and you yeah. uh, know yeah, as as you just alluded to there's been a dust up of sorts uh, in recent evangelical theology in particular over this issue with Wayne Grudem and others you know denying uh, the eternal generation of the sun and, uh, and, uh, the majority of the community pressing back saying, no, 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 this is extraordinarily important. Uh, for you, uh, in terms of your own, you know, processing of the material, what do you think is at stake then, uh, in this doctrine, the eternal generation of the sun?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think actually recently, uh, at the recent ETS conference, which I wasn't present at, I understand that, um, that, uh, Grudem and, uh, Bruce were. um, actually said, no, they do think that there is a case for the eternal generation of the Son now. They, so they've changed their view as a consequence of, of a lot of these discussions. Um, but uh, what do I think is at stake here? I think this is a really fundamental theological issue, because what's at stake here is the nature of God. I mean, uh, if we as Christians think that God is, is a trinity, um, and it seems to me that is one of the to most central and defining doctrines of Christianity, the other one being the incarnation uh, and the turning work of Christ. Um, if uh, we do think that God's a Trinity, then um, then trying to to get at how it is uh, that the Son is differentiated from the Father in the Trinity is pretty important, I would think. And um, historically, in the uh, in the early church, as the church Reflecting on the biblical tradition that it had received and trying to resist certain inroads being made into the church by those who thought differently came to the conclusion, uh, that, and God is triune. This is the, this is the testimony of the apostles and prophets that we have to uphold. They came to uh, the view that, uh, in order to have, um, some way of distinguishing the the Father and the Son uh, as two persons within the Trinity, we have to say uh, that uh, fundamentally what is distinguishing here is this relation, what's sometimes called by theologians the relation of origin that distinguishes the the Son from the Father. And uh, that relation of origin is his being eternally begotten. In other words, if we ask the question, what distinguishes the Father from the Son or the Son from the Father in the Trinity – Uh, The answer is being eternally begotten is what distinguishes the Son from the Father. So giving up on that is really giving up on something pretty important, because then if you give up on that, you have to ask the question, well, how do we distinguish the Father from the Son? There's uh, There's not really a very good answer to that, it seems to me, which is why I think that the fathers of the early church took this matter really seriously and thought it was really fundamental, and why subsequent theologians have also... Uh, thought similarly that this is something which we really need to have some clear view on to the extent that we can of course get clear on this great mystery of the faith in order that we can say something sensible about uh, the distinction between the Father and the Son whilst also of course upholding um, the the fact that both the Father and the Son are divine persons that are co-equal in in honour and glory and power so Always with the doctrine of Trinity, I think, we are treading a very fine line. We want to say enough so that we can um, say something sensible about God as we worship God, but we don't want to say too much and then fall into rationalism or incoherence um, or um, you know overstep the boundary, as it were, that separates us from the, the mysterious nature of God himself. I hope I've managed to negotiate that boundary. I mean, in many ways, that chapter is really an attempt to uh, articulate the historic view uh, in response to some recent uh, attempts to revise it.
1: Yeah, um, I I think you do uh, manage to balance on the edge of the knife there quite uh, adeptly. Um, One of the things that you discuss in the chapter then is the difference of ontologically subordinating the uh, the son to the father. Uh, and uh, the, and it's sort of differentiating that from the economic sort of subordination of the son to the father, yeah. Um, and uh, I th- I felt that was helpful, um, and I was wondering if you could develop that a little bit more, and uh, perhaps I have another follow up question on that, uh, maybe depending on how you develop it. But uh, any comments on uh, what you mean then, or, or to, to draw that out, that the ontological subordination versus the economic.
2: Yeah, good. So, the ont- I take it that ontological subordination is, some- is something like this, that the Son is actually somehow uh, subordinate in his being, in who he is to the Father. Now, that seems to me to be unacceptable theologically. We don't want to say that the Son is somehow less than the Father. Uh, that is precisely what the early church wanted to resist, and wanted to say that is emphatically not the message that has been bequeathed to us by the apostles and prophets uh, in the New Testament documents. So, But we do want to make some kind of distinction. So what kind of distinction can we make? Well, it's got to be one that has to do with God's work in creation and reconciliation. Uh, And that is uh, an economic kind of subordination. So there is a sense in which the Son does subordinate himself by taking on human flesh and voluntarily taking up this role of being the mediator of the covenant of salvation um, and humbling himself to become, as we read in, in the great Christ hymn of Philippians, humbling himself to become uh, a human being in order that he could reconcile us uh, to God. As Athanasius said, God uh, became man that we might be become divine in some sense. So there's a, there's this kind of movement from God through to taking up human nature in order that we may participate in the divine life. Um, And I think that kind of functional subordination where Christ, where where the second person of Trinity, as it were, uh, willingly makes himself um, uh, a a human being in order to reconcile us to to God's self, that kind of subordination is, um, I think, theologically acceptable um but uh, that is of course very different from saying that the son in himself is something different from the father um or something less than the father and that's emphatically what we don't want to say so so i think that distinction is a really important one uh teasing that out helps us to see oh yeah there is a sense in which the biblical record does seem to suggest uh as a human being uh christ does Um, Do this work. um, It's subordinate to the will of the Father, as it were. But it's ultimately to bring about our reconciliation, um, which uh, is part and parcel of of the, the work of the triune Jehovah, as it were, the work of Father, Son and Holy Spirit together.
1: Yeah, that's that's very helpful. I think that um, you know um, the way that you articulated in terms of the subordination, uh, uh, this functional subordination, is something that New Testament scholars, I think, have, have stumbled over frequently. And the way that you nuanced that in terms of his human nature uh, being uh, uh, the the portion of, of, of the Christ that is subordinate, not his own, uh, his whole person, uh, 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 is I think is helpful. At least was helpful for me. Uh, got to ponder it more. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's let's jump over to. Your- Second chapter, um, Christ without flesh. And uh, here you specifically interact with Robert Jensen. Uh, and Jensen has proposed uh, that the Word of God never existed in a state without flesh. Now, um, I think this is a proposal that will probably take many biblical scholars um, uh, by surprise, perhaps. It's somewhat of an odd claim. Um, we might think, you know, isn't that what the Incarnation is all about? That the Logos, who was not in flesh, took on human flesh. But Jensen seems to be asserting. Um, that uh, the Word of God never existed in a state without flesh uh, prior to the Incarnation, even. Um, so what is it that seems to be motivating Jensen in making this claim? And uh, we, why don't we begin with that? And then I had uh, something that I might want to draw out further from you there. But why don't we begin with that? What do you think What do you think is driving Jensen?
2: <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, I've interacted with Jensen's work in uh, previously and in, indeed on this particular question previously and uh, in one or two other respects as well. So I'd I do want to first of all say that I've greatly benefited from Jensen's work. And I think that uh, the two-volume systematic theology, which sums up much of his mature thinking um, that he produced uh, in the 90s, is uh, really, for me anyway, has been a very um, important sort of resource in in terms of trying to think about a number of things in in systematic theology in recent times. So I, I really have a lot of time for Robert Jensen. Um, He's one of these people who I love reading, even though I I almost always come to different views from the ones that he espouses. Um, So he's a kind of interesting intellectual foil. Now, in this respect, on this particular question, I think what he's concerned about is the separating out of um, the second person of the Trinity from Christ. He doesn't want to have any, um, as it were, daylight between those two things. So he wants to affirm that uh, the second person of the Trinity is identical with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, So uh, there can't be a sense in which we can talk about Christ without his flesh, uh, without his human nature. Uh, And he worries about any such talk because he thinks that's an inappropriate abstraction from what we see kind of concretely being worked out in in the Gospels. Uh, and what he thinks that says about the divine life um so I, I mean in some respects i'm I can see what motivates him and why he uh why he feels that he has to go in the way that he does um, but ultimately um I think I want to say something different, both about the composition of Christ, as it were, you know what what makes Christ up, so to speak um and also about the pre existence of Christ, because it seems to me what we want to say is that there is a is a sense perhaps it's a conceptual distinction, but there is a sense in which uh the second person of the Trinity pre exists uh his incarnate state. Or perhaps what we want to say is this, perhaps a better way of putting it is this Christ's human nature begins to exist at a certain time. We might want to say the Son of God is eternally god incarnate but we want to say that nevertheless his human nature begins to exist at some time and prior to that uh, moment he didn't have you know the human nature of christ didn't exist um so i think i'm I, I here's another case where i'm trying to um bring to bear some of the resources of the great tradition as it were and uh seek to um seek to retell a way of, of thinking about uh this particular aspect of the Incarnation that um, shores up a fairly traditional account of Christ's pre-existence.
1: Yeah, and um, in this second chapter, you, you begin to speak a little bit about um, uh, Christological compositionalism, and this is something that um, it seemed like was uh, at least a leitmotif that sort of runs through your book as well, as uh, you, you had, a, had a fair bit of discussion uh, uh around uh the idea that uh christ um, we might be able to break christ into com- various components uh and uh, and that might uh, be helpful uh, in terms of analytical categories for um, thinking about how this all works theologically um, and so uh I wondered and this actually pertains to your third chapter as well uh you know which 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 does have to do with the whole idea of whether or not uh, we can speak of God having a body um yeah. you you do use the compositional christology resource there as well um could you unpack compositional christology for us uh, what other options would be on the table uh and uh yeah. how does it, how is this a, as a is this a resource that's helpful for us theologically
2: some people might be appalled at the idea that we might want to analyze or think about how, um, Christ is composed of various parts or what those parts might be, that this is somehow blasphemous or inappropriate or, or maybe not even that, just that it's, it's, uh, completely wrong-headed way of thinking about these things. But I do think there's, there's reason for trying to do this, um, because, uh, the theological implications of what we say about how it is that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, are enormous. So trying to get a clearer picture of what we want to say about this particular topic is, it seems to me, certainly worth thinking about with some care. Um, now, I've already said that Jensen and many other people think that when we think about the relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and the second person of the Trinity, what we want to say is the, rela- the relation there is one of identity. In other words, they are one, the same thing, Right. And that's that's the end of the story, to some extent. Um, And, uh, of course, I'm very sympathetic to that kind of concern. But I think I would want to um, nuance that a little bit. And it seems to me that what we want to say is something slightly different. So there are various options that one could pursue here. One could simply say that Jesus of Nazareth is identical to God, the son, and that's the end of it. But other um, theologians in the tradition, and more recently analytic theologians, have sought to develop this uh, compositional view. And the view is something like this. When we talk about Christ, we're talking about a composite uh, that is a whole made up of parts. And, of course, we have lots of kind of composite things in the world around us, from tables and chairs uh, to bridges and tower blocks. They're all composed of very different parts, uh, concrete and tiles and steel and all sorts of other things. In a way, uh, Christ is also composed of parts, not of concrete and steel and tiles and so on, of course, but um, of his human nature and his divine nature. And if we want to follow the fathers of the early church in their um, doctrine of Christ being uh, one person with two natures, the so-called two natures doctrine, then we have to be very careful what we say about how Christ is composed because it seems to me we want to say, at root, we're dealing with one person, not two persons, one person. So we're dealing with the second person of the Trinity who acquires a human nature. Now, on one way of thinking about that, the way that I am quite keen on it, what we want to say is Christ's human nature, whatever that is, is some concrete thing, a body and soul, rightly related, or whatever human nature is that is acquired by the second person of the Trinity in the Incarnation. But then it looks like Christ is composed of these parts, his human nature, whatever his human nature is, and the second person of the Trinity that's uniting himself to that human nature and making that human nature his own. So strictly speaking, it wouldn't be true to say that Christ is identical to God the Son. It would be, uh, it would be true to say that God the Son is, is God incarnate, or God the Son has a human nature, um, but uh, clearly God the Son is, a, is merely a part of this larger composite whole that is Christ that comprises uh, God the Son and uh, the, the, the nature he has as a divine person, and the human nature uh, that he takes on uh, in the incarnation. So that's what I mean by a kind of composite or compositional account of the two natures doctrine of Christ, um, some people will worry about that and, and don't like the composite view. So there are these other there are other options on the table, and there are various versions of the compositional view. That's not just one uh, monolithic view. Um, but what I try to do um, in the in the book here is outline one particular uh, version of the compositional view as part of this wider theme of how it is that, that God needs to have a kind of hub between divinity and humanity in order to bring about our human reconciliation. So the, this rather sort of technical, perhaps even arcane uh, account of the composition of Christ has actually a very important purpose in trying to help us get a better grip on how it is that uh, Christ's work um, enables us ultimately to participate in the divine life.
1: Thanks, Oliver. I think that's helpful. And as as we kind of probe uh, this idea of the second person of the Trinity or the hypostasis of the Trinity, then (laughs) as a distinct person taking on Human nature, uh, and, uh, that human nature not existing, uh, at least as a, as the personal nature of the man Jesus at that point, uh, until it's taken on, right? That that's the moment in which Jesus' human nature then begins to exist. Uh, this is, this is what's properly termed the enhypostatic union, right? That's the language that's, uh, preferred. Am I, am I, am I following that correctly?
2: Yeah, no, you're right. So, I, uh, we don't, so that, what that language about is, uh, is is referring to is this claim that we don't want to have some human person wandering around first pa- century Palestine that's then possessed by a divine person. We don't want a divine possession like, you know, some kind of sanctified exorcist view of the Incarnation. What we want to say is uh, that uh, the second person of the Trinity takes on a human nature and makes that human nature his own from the from the get go, as it were. So it never exists independent of the second person of the Trinity. It's formed in the womb of the of the Virgin in order for it to be his human nature. And um but it's, it's never a human nature that, as it were, becomes a human person and exists as a human person independent of the second person of the Trinity. So, so there's only ever one person uh present in Christ. And that's the second person of the Trinity. But he has a complete human nature. That's what we want to say, I think.
1: Yeah, that's that's a helpful clarification and it was uh, was helpful for me as I was as, uh, you know still working on my own Christological grammar here um, well I, I really profited from the whole book and it was it's hard for me to pick a favorite chapter but chapter 4 might have been it for me uh, the title of the chapter was the Christological doctrine of the image of God um, and uh, there are different ways of handling image of God theology that you outline uh, and I think helpfully so and um, and so uh, it might be helpful for, uh, for our listeners that if you were to outline uh, some of the other options for image of God theology and then um, maybe a little bit of the trajectory that you go down, uh, and then I'll maybe after that tell you what grabbed my attention in particular in the chapter and the part that I really loved. Uh, go okay. ahead.
2: Yeah, sure. So there are some people that talk about the image of God in, in terms of something substantial in human beings. Maybe it's our reason. Maybe it's a, having a soul or something like that. Uh, there are other people that think that uh, the image of God is something like a function that human beings perform, and, and there's been some interesting work done on this recently in uh, in biblical studies as well as theological studies, picking up on some of those themes about how human beings image God in their sort of um, their role as a kind of viceroy over creation, and so the, the divine image might be something to do with uh, a, a function that we perform in. Um, in exercising God's rule in creation, something like that. Um, the, I, I mean, I, I like both of those sorts of ways of thinking to some extent, I except I think there there's there's limitations uh, with each of those views. And I think that the view that I'm proposing here, which again is not really a novel view, uh, brings together the best aspects of both of those uh, ways of thinking about the divine image in a new whole. And one that I think um, has certain... Uh, certain benefits that these other views don't. So, I mean, in the terms of the substantive view, worries there might be, you know, what if you identify the image of God with, you know, having uh, having reason or having the power to reason or something like that? Say, well, then what about those human beings that don't have the power to reason? Do they, do they not have the image of God? Um, or if we're going to say that uh, the divine image is something. Uh, of a, a functional role, does that really capture everything we want to say about the divine image? Is it, is it merely a role that we exercise, or is there something more to it than that? So, uh, taking my cue, I hope, from some of the later New Testament material, um, where we read, for example, in Colossians 1, uh, and many other places, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, I wanted to press this idea that Christ Himself is the image of God, the prototypical image of God, a bit like the kind of prototype motor car that, uh, that might be conceived of uh, and they build in the, in the factory, as it were, to test out. He's the prototypical image of God, and we are image, images of God as we image Christ, a bit like the production line versions of the car that, uh, that are built on the same specification as the prototype. Um And so you might say the production line car images the prototype because, you know, it's based on the same specifications as the prototype. So similarly, we are images of God as we image Christ, as we're made in the image of Christ in both uh, in in particular in his humanity. But of course, the important thing for the Christological uh, image is that Christ, as I've said before, is this hub between divinity and humanity He's both fully human and fully divine. And because he is both fully human and fully divine and uh, is participating in the divine life, as it were, um, so we are able to participate uh, in the divine life because being built on the same specifications, as it were, as Christ, we, like Christ, have the capacity to be um, united intimately uh, through Christ with God and, and therefore to participate in some sense in, in the divine life and to be united with God. So God has built us, as it were, uh, or ensured that we uh, come about in such a way uh, that we as human beings um, are um, fashioned so that we, our ultimate goal is to be united with Christ uh, and united with God. Uh, And um, we see this in the, uh, we see this image for us perfectly, as it were, in the hypostatic union, that's the union of Christ, human and humanity and divinity, uh, and we see that, as it were, um, imaged in a, in a kind of dim copy, as it were, in the way that we, um, are imaging Christ in his humanity and are enabled through the power of the Holy Spirit to participate in, uh, divinity, as it were, through, um, through being united to God in Christ. So I think on my way of thinking, this Christological image uh, notion which you find in the fathers and, and recurs in uh, later, uh, uh, later later phases of church history. This Christological doctrine um, does say something about human beings that's substantive, does say something about human beings that's functional, but says something more than that about the purposes of God in creation um, and the purposes of God um, to ultimately unite us with himself through Christ. So I think it really ties up a number of loose ends that other views of the image of God don't seem to adequately deal with, and um, happily for the, the book that I'm, I've been writing, um, f- it feeds rather nicely into this whole uh, motif about union with God in Christ.
1: Yeah, I think you're um, you're a- you're absolutely right uh, that, that that it does foreground union, and I think uh, does uh, uh, adequate justice to the biblical. Evidence suggesting that union with Christ is central to salvation. I really like the analogy that you used um, with uh, you know the, uh, the motor car and the prototype. And again, I, I think that you're on the right track. I do think that uh, that the idea that the, the Christ is the prototype for all humanity is is in line with the biblical evidence. When I'm teaching on this, I like to use the example of of the Christ as the as the original stamp. Uh, that creates, uh, the impress of the stamp on pieces of paper. And there's, a, uh, he's in a sense the prototype, uh, then that the, the derivative copies then, you know, are the inky impresses that are left behind afterwards. But the motor car might be even better. I might steal that, uh, and, and uh, and use that, uh, subsequently. I want to read a little bit from your page 63, and this might be nice, you know, uh, to give, uh, listeners a flavor of some of your writing. And, uh, your writing is, is, uh, very precise. Uh, and, uh, I think that, uh, um, it's, it's worth listening to. But this this was another analogy that grabbed my attention to on your page 63. Uh, you say this, another illustration. Suppose I wanted to go to a masquerade. In order to do so, I needed I need to purchase a disguise. It needs to fit my face. So I have a mask made that conforms to the contours of my visage. It would not fit your face in the same way because it is bespoke. It is made to fit me, not you. In a similar manner, the human nature of Christ is fashioned in order that it might conform to and be in personal union with God the Son. What I am suggesting is that in order to do this, God ordained that human nature have certain properties and powers that would mean that the particular human nature God the Son assumes at the first moment of his incarnation conforms to and it is capable of being in personal union with a divine person. Human nature is created in order that it might reflect the divine image and be united to God. I really like that part, that human nature is created in order that it might reflect the divine image and be united to God. Continuing, in the case of Christ, that union is unique and personal. He has metaphysical ownership, as it were, of the human nature he assumes, just as I have ownership of my own human nature. But all human beings, and I think you're stressing here the all, uh, all human beings have a nature that is capable of such hypostatic union and principle. And all human beings are given a nature that has the requisite image of God so that God the Son may unite himself with human nature. Indeed Christ is the archetype whose human nature is the blueprint for all other human natures. Uh, that part was maybe my favorite part of the whole book. I have to say love, love that analogy of the bespoke uh, you know uh, dimension of our humanity or our human nature, but nevertheless, uh, all human nature uh, uh, because it's created in the uh, as a replica of Christ's uh, is made so it can unite with God. Uh, it's really stunning. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for
2: saying that. I appreciate that.
1: Yes. Um, well, uh, time's time's running along here, so I'm going to have to jump a little farther forward in my interview than I wanted to. Um, but uh, in Chapter 6, uh, uh, Chapter 5 is on uh, desiderata for the models of the hypostatic union, and uh, you're working especially with the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, very well done chapter. I enjoyed it a lot. And, and you get into the in, in, in hypostatic distinction there, uh, which we've already discussed, that idea, you know, of especially uh, – Personal uh, that personalizing that the human nature of Jesus that that didn't happen until uh, uh, the moment of the incarnation, uh, and then in chapter six you're doing a bit on compositional Christology again, and uh, there was an analogy that you used again that I that uh, that again was very memorable to me, and and so I wanted to uh, have have the chance to have you elaborate on it and maybe ask you a question about it, and uh, you argue that God uses His human nature in an instrumental fashion akin. To how Stephen Hawking, uh, who's this famous physicist, right? Who's uh, who's disabled, uh, and specifically disabled with regard to his voice, uh, that he uses a, vo- a voice box so that he can nevertheless speak. Um, so, uh, can you develop that a little bit further and 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 draw the connections to Jesus uh, uh, for us?
2: Yeah. So, um, I think the issue here is um, how the second person of the Trinity in in assuming a human nature assumes uh, in this, in this uh, part of the book, I'm trying to think of it in terms of something like an instrument assumes assume something like an instrument that enables him to act and behave in what we might think of as a sort of hostile environment, you know, uh, to to use a different analogy, it would be a bit like uh, an astronaut, using a spacesuit in order to be able to walk in space. You have to have the spacesuit to walk in space. Well, in a similar way, we might say that the second person of the Trinity, who's a spirit, of course, God is spirit, we're told in the New Testament, um, in order to, uh, as it were, walk around on Earth, has to acquire a human nature in order to do so. Um, It needs to be a human nature that's, that's insulated from sin, of course, a bit like the spacesuit has to be insulated from the, the near vacuum of space and so uh that's exactly what happens in the incarnation he acquires a human nature in order that he may walk amongst us and, and ultimately of course in order that he may reconcile us uh to god's self i think the point that i was making there with respect to professor hawking that was actually suggested to me initially by uh, brian leftow in oxford um it's just that um just as Professor Hawking has uh, this kind of electronic instrumentation that enables him to uh, to simulate speech, to speak to those around him and therefore communicate to those around him, so also in taking up uh, human nature, Christ uh, is able to communicate with us and bring bring about certain effects in the world in which we live, the physical world, including uh, being reconciled uh, to God's self through the work of Christ.
1: Um, one of the concerns I had as I was kind of sort of thinking through the logic of this is does it give enough space uh, for uh, Jesus' human will to sort of operate? I and mean, one, one possible concern w- with this would be that if, if uh, Jesus and his divinity is sort of putting on the spacesuit sort of analogy, uh, you know, uh, uh, in order to take up his humanity um that it might override the human sort of theater of operation that we have in the will uh and uh that he would be using it as a passive instrument sort of like the voice box would be passive um uh, have you encountered any criticism in uh f- from that direction at all or uh do you have a response to that sort of criticism that could possibly be brought
2: absolutely uh i mean people do criticize you for that very reason but uh and, and, you know, this, this criticism is not a new one. I mean, if you go back and read the Summa Theologiae when, uh, St. Thomas is dealing with the treatise of, uh, of the Incarnation, uh, he at one point talks about the human nature of Christ as being like a garment that he takes up and puts on, like a, like a suit of clothes or something that's put on by the second person of the Trinity. But he's very careful to say, but this is not an exact analogy in every respect. This is a sort of, a way of illustrating something of the mystery of the Incarnation. And I, I would want to say something similar here to both the the voice box analogy and the, uh, the astronaut analogy. To some extent, what we're trying to do here is provide a picture of something that is ultimately mysterious and beyond our can. But to some extent, we're, we're sort of saying, well, maybe it's kind of like this. And I think in a way we do that all the time with things that we find mysterious or... Um, Uh, to some extent beyond our understanding i mean we do it certainly in the sciences when we try to do things like model subatomic particles you know you've got your your physics textbook uh, physics 101 textbook with a model of a particle or a model of an atom well it obviously doesn't actually look like that we've never seen one right but this is a model of how we think it might look as a simplified description of something more complex in some respects i think that's what we're doing here with the with the doctrine of the uh, hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ, we're trying to find ways of articulating that, that um, helps us to get a better conceptual grip on it. Though we are cognizant of the fact, as St. Thomas says, that this is not an apt way of thinking about it in every respect. And we, so we have to, like any of these analogies or these pictures that we use in this kind of way when speaking about God, we have to be cognizant of the limitations of uh, what we're able to say, and not press these ways of thinking too far, as if they are, you know, give us some kind of one-on-one correspondence to how things actually are in, in the Godhead. I certainly wouldn't want to say that, but I hope that in speaking in this way, it, it helps readers to begin to see something of how we might uh, see that um, Christ, Christ's human nature, is is born as it were, or taken up. Uh, by the second person, the Trinity, and in the Incarnation.
1: Well, uh, I, I think we do uh, need to press on to um, a final question here just for the sake of time, and I apologize that I'm not going to be able to ask you anything about chapter 7, 8, and 9, and if I uh, probably could summarize briefly, they involve a metaphysically metaphys- realist understanding uh, of the atonement on the one hand and spirit union on the other. I hope that's a fair summary. Um, yeah. Okay, um, but but readers will have to, uh, or listeners will have to become readers uh, in order to encounter that material. Um, now, uh, I, I wanted to ask you a final question, and we've been asking this of of all of our on-script guests, so I'm curious to hear what you'll say. Um, and uh, what we've been asking is, what is the one idea in the field of New Testament studies or Christian origins that needs to die? Now, that's a, that's a hard question, maybe, because you're outside the field of New Testament or Christian origins, so I'll allow you to expand, if you wish, uh, and to uh, tell me one idea that needs to die uh, in uh, systematic theology or analytic theology, uh, if you wish, or you can speak to New Testament or Christian origins.
2: Wow, what a question. Um, let me, let me address uh, biblical, the biblical stuff and then I'll, I'll say something about um, systematic and analytic theology. So on the biblical side of things, one idea that seems to me to be problematic is this notion that um, we have to articulate anything we want to say about things like Christology or anything, that, anything theological that arises out of the New Testament purely in terms of history and narrative. And if we move away from history and narrative, if we extrapolate from those and start thinking, as I am in this book, uh, about um, the hypostatic union, for example, then then the worry is that we, we end up doing violence to the ideas themselves by wrenching them out of the context of the history or the narrative. Now, I just think that that's uh, a mistaken way of how we uh, should think about the history and narrative of the New Testament and the ideas or the concepts that arise out of the New Testament history in the narrative. And, of course, um, there's, a, there's a sophisticated literature on these sorts of things about how to think um, about um, history and uh, the biblical tradition and different models for um, approaching these texts in this way, the different sort of hermeneutical models. So, in a sense, all I'm doing there is signalling um, my dissatisfaction with one of those particular models, and perhaps unsurprisingly, my um, my greater appreciation of those models that are closer to something like the kind of theological interpretation sort of approaches um, with respect to the biblical text. So, they're happy to entertain the notion that um, that the New Testament authors are themselves uh, inextricably theological in what they say, and we can certainly reflect on those theologies um, and uh, take the concepts and ideas that they articulate and think and reflect about them outside of, as it were, strictly speaking, the narratives of the New Testament. Of course, there's there's always a worry that you can run with ideas in a way that will um, end up distorting those ideas ultimately, and perhaps that's the worry that many people who take this um, historical narrative view have, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, uh, it may be the case, but I think if we're careful, we can, um, we can do something useful and productive. I hope we can, because otherwise the sort of stuff that I do is, a, is largely, um, a waste of time. But in terms of the, uh, theology and the analytic theology side of things, what needs to die there? Well, um, uh, perhaps not die so much as as be um, thought about in a slightly different way. I think there there persists a certain kind of suspicion between people who do theology and people who do biblical studies, um, and perhaps that's a mutual suspicion. We kind of look at each other over a kind of no man's land. Um, occasionally, there's uh, sorties across no man's land to uh, to one side of the trenches or the other. And sometimes there's even a kind of armistice where people uh, go and play football in no man's land together. Um, but um, that doesn't happen enough, I think. And I do think that um, something I would like to see more of, so perhaps not so much dying as as developing and flourishing, uh, is gr- a greater rapprochement between those of us in different sort of disciplines and in, in the trenches facing one another, as it were, um, what needs to die then is uh, the kind of suspicion that we have of one another and what needs to be encouraged, uh, I think, is a, is a greater attempt to seek to understand one another and, and learn from one another. And actually, um, I think that's not a very easy thing to do. I mean, I think um, one of the problems is we have different sort of methodological assumptions, different sorts of projects that we're wedded to. Sometimes it's difficult for us to think beyond ourselves to what those from other subdisciplines are trying to say or, or do, and, but and, and so there's a lot of listening involved there. But I, I think that that kind of project of trying to build bridges across these subdisciplines is something that I'm deeply invested in. Uh, certainly in analytic theology, I'm deeply invested in that in the bridge between theology and philosophy. But I hope that uh, we can see more such constructive work in the bridge in, in building bridges between theology and biblical studies and and the kind of theology that I'm interested in, biblical studies. And of course, uh, here, as with my um, previous answer to the previous question, there's work already being done in in this regard. And I hope that that will be built upon uh, to our our betterment and to our uh, mutual enrichment in the years to come. Well,
1: Thanks, Oliver. I appreciate that. And I appreciate that I asked, you know, uh, for one thing that needs to die, and uh, you're generous in handing out death. Uh, you at, you, uh, you actually gave two, one in uh, New Testament, one in theology. Um, but but certainly I think I'm sympathetic to the idea that the dominance of sort of historical critical paradigms and narratives in New Testament studies, uh, it, it's on the wane and I think beginning to die anyway. Uh, but I also, uh, you, you certainly were speaking to my heart when you were talking about, you know, uh, the need to build bridges between biblical studies and, and theology proper. Uh, this conversation, hopefully, is a good step in that direction. Uh, so I very much appreciate that. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time here. Um, so I, I sure appreciated you joining me today,
2: Oliver. Thank you very much for having me. I think it's been great. I mean, it's been terrific to, of course, all scholars like to have the opportunity to talk about their work. And But, I mean, it's been very, uh, it's been very helpful to me to have this opportunity to speak to you. So thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Oliver. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Our guest today has been Oliver Crisp. His book, The Word Enfleshed, released just a couple months ago with Baker Academic. You'll definitely want to read it. It's a very stimulating, Christological discussion. Uh, Moreover, Oliver's prose is unfailingly lucid and well. Uh, I'm going to leave you with an awfully, terribly bad pun. It's very crisp. Uh, That's that's humor so bad uh, that it's probably going to fester for a few days. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, As always, uh, you're going to find links to Oliver's new book on our website, onscript.study. Take care. You've been listening to OnScript,
0: conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.